If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Well, greetings to you from uh, City on a Hill, Brookline. Uh, we're so glad we know you're here and we pray for you. Um, we're grateful to be a network of churches. I was describing it to my daughter. We're a, uh, it's kind of like a family of churches, right? Uh, we're each autonomous, uh, if you don't know that, but um, we, all, all the pastors of the City on a Hill churches get together every week for fellowship and prayer and to uh, even prepare how we're gonna teach the word of God together. Um, and so uh, just really grateful to be here this morning. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, it's, kinda, it's, it's great to be here. So um, I wanna start out by saying, talking about kind of what happens when you get to know someone. All right, so when you get to know someone, you, you begin to, what do you do? You begin to pick up more than you could kind of get through facts and statements, right? More than if you went to an icebreaker and you said, tell me about yourself. Uh, you, you be, when you get to know someone, what happens is you begin to have stories to tell about that person, right? You begin to know when people are getting things right about them and getting things wrong about them. If, if the person was a leader or a teacher or a mentor for you especially, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, you remember not just what they said, but who they were, and that begins to take greater shape. And if that person is family, well then, well then you really know a lot about how they'd handle situations, right? You have, you have years of data, from the smallest incidents to the biggest. And so, for example, uh, my wife Tanya, who's here today, uh, she sometimes, sometimes will know exactly how I'm going to behave in all kinds of situations, because She's just been around me enough to know what I'm gonna do, what I'm gonna say. She's not always right, but she is frequently correct. Um, <laughs> and so James, the writer of this letter, is the brother of our Lord Jesus, Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit to his mother Mary as a virgin, but later other siblings were conceived by natural non-miraculous means. James was family to Jesus. So in some ways, the closest you can get. Part of kind of that inner circle. And you ever meet family that doesn't just look alike, but they talk alike? They, they even sound like each other the way they talk. So sometimes uh, people meet my younger brother, Stefan, and, and, and they, they kind of go, oh, this is weird. He talks just like you. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, Jesus and James were family. And so James, quite keenly, he's been trying to remind the church about what it means to be the church. I'm going to, you know what? Hold on. I feel slightly uncomfortable with the exact distance of the podium to the people, so I just moved it back a bit. I'm sorry. I kept standing here, and I was like, why am I doing this? Because I feel uncomfortable. Um, sorry. All right. James, so, so James is trying to remind people of what it means to be the church, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be the church, what it means to be known by him, what it means to walk with him, what it means to be his disciple. I mean, this is an incredible testimony. So family, by the way, Family is usually kind of the last people who give you the honor and respect that you might get in the outside world. You know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe some of you have, have uh, worked your way into convincing people you're a certain kind of person, and then very quickly family is quick to put you back in your place when you kind of are around. And they go, excuse me, we kind of know. All right, who wet the bed when you were little, this kind of thing, right? So everybody knows you when you're family. And yet to have the brother of Jesus proclaim him as Lord, what kind of jump is that? 
What, what does that mean? And if you're not a believer today, if you don't believe Jesus is Lord, his brother said he's Lord. So either his brother was absolutely insane or maybe his brother, or maybe Jesus is who he said he was, right? And so I just wanna put that in your mind this morning if you have not considered it. And so James 1 thus far, if you, get, you guys have been going through this, I know Tyler was here last week to tell you about James 2, but if you, if you think back to the weeks prior in James 1, it's been a primer on trials and suffering. And that's important because think about how much of our minds are bent towards trying to avoid trials and suffering. Or how much time we spend agonizing as if we were promised no trials to begin with, as if that's the ideal. And that is what James says we, uh, uh, that's not what James says we are promised or called into. So we're not called to attempt to escape trials or suffering, right? We're called to see them as a joy. And so James says the trials should be received with joy because God's using them to, prov- prov- uh, to produce steadfastness, a perfection and completion of our faith, right? And so th- uh, uh, Jesus didn't run from his trials and pain when we think about his life. Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we were healed. So Jesus didn't run from his trials or pain. In fact, he pursued a relationship with God and with others and endured the loneliness required so that he could be the healing of the suffering of others. He didn't mind a trial or pain because it produced healing. And so there's a way of Jesus, James says, of enduring trials that leads to being perfect and complete in our steadfastness, an ability to withstand temptations, right? In order to fulfill these purposes that God has for us. So trials that lead to joyful suffering, the way of Jesus, That's one way you can go in life, essentially. That's a way that you need to live your life, James says. Or there's this other path, James has been saying in chapter one. Another path of desire, of of wrongly ordered desires that lead to death. They lead to sin and then to death, right? James 1.14, to just give you this primer. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So again, not all desire is bad, but something about desires when they get twisted. Wrongly ordered desires, desires that we put above all else. They lead to sin and then to death. And when we say death, we mean complete death. Sin which further breaks relationship with others and God. It leads to the final death, eternal suffering and madness, enslaved to our sin, joyless for all of eternity, the final death. So in following the way of Jesus, of joy and suffering for the healing of others and ourselves, James begins to outline some of these ways in which we pursue and experience the joy that Jesus himself enjoyed with his father while we walked while he walked on the earth to bear our suffering. James is showing us this path that Jesus opened, a path to die to ourselves and be a part of restoring relationship, uh, having a restored relationship with God and one another, a path to keep the world from rotting faster than it already is, a path to previewing what Jesus will fully accomplish when he returns, a path described as a light burden compared to uh, to how the teaching of other faiths and other teachers of the law would have it, uh, an easy way to endure the trials of life and experience the joy of God. And the first thing he gets to in that, you would think, okay, here's the easy path. Here's the way of, 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 of enduring trials well. You would think he would get into some kind of techniques 
something profound maybe. And the first thing he gets to is the way we talk to each other, especially in the body of Christ. If you remember in 19 through 21, he addresses their anger. He says, know this, 19, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then he talks about getting rid of filthiness and wickedness, right? So I'm just taking you on this quick survey to, to see that like, he's telling you that you can endure trials and do well, and then he gets into anger, which seems a little bit strange. And so there's something about their slowness to hear, their quickness in speaking, the quickness to anger. This is gonna lead to their eternal death if they are not cautious. And people who do this, people who are slow to hear, quick in speaking, quick to anger, they're like people, James says, that look into a mirror and they just forget who they are. They've forgotten who they are. And so before we get into all this, you know, I want to thank uh, uh, Ben for the, the song choice today. I think to think about your sins being removed from the east to the west, our transgressions have been removed from us, that's really, really important as we encounter the word today. But do you see yourself, if you're a Christian this morning, as a disciple, someone learning this way of living under Jesus' teaching? Are you like his student? In school and work, you know, you're a professional disciple of sorts, aren't you? In sports, maybe, if you play in sports, do you view yourself as a disciple of Jesus? Who is the Lord of your life this morning? Who are you following and entrusting the direction of your life to? Is it the values and principles you know, what, what kind of values and principles are you trying to cobble together for yourself? Are you trying to disciple yourself or are you following the way of Jesus? In what family have you been brought into? Who is your actual family? Who is your brother and sister and who is your Lord? These are questions you have to ask yourself as we come to the word of God this morning. And the gospel is so important. We've been singing about it. Pastor Fletcher just talked about it. If you don't have a deep sense that I belong to God and my transgressions have been taken away from me, you cannot encounter the word of God properly. James is going to have some hard words for us, but we can't encounter those hard words unless we know we've been forgiven, right? If you know forgiveness is on the other end of hearing a hard word, then you're more willing to let it impact you. If you are not sure that there's forgiveness on the other end of someone's words, then you might be afraid. You might hide you might try to explain away what they are saying. But in the gospel, we have forgiveness. And so that's really, really important. So, verse 26. James talks about religion, right? And we just said religious and irreligious people becoming gospel people. So in this sense, he's talking about religion. He's just saying pure faith. He's talking about being gospel people. Being people that restore being people that are not torn apart. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Notice he's gone from talking about being slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to be angry. Now he talks about bridling the tongue like a rider who would steer a horse. So a bridle and bit, right? It's the thing that goes into a horse's mouth so that you can control the horse in the direction it goes in. Essentially, if you don't watch what you say to others, about others, if you don't watch what you say in general, especially in the church, especially among the people of God, then your supposed religion is worthless. You're deceived. Remember, guys, this is a strong reprimand, but it's from someone who's deeply concerned for his brothers and sisters. 
Someone who remembers the humility of Jesus and witnessed it for his entire life, his childhood, who badly is trying to remind the church of who they are trying to follow and receive life and joy from. Someone who is trying to save them from death. And that person is saying, if you don't bridle your speech, your religion, your faith, it's, it's worthless. Being careful to control your words is part of our participating in this joyful suffering of Christ that leads to life, especially in the midst of trials. He died so that we could bridle our tongues, so that we might be able to be careful about what we say, so we could bring life with our words and healing and strength to others. Now, this is pretty countercultural, right? If you think about it, I mean, if you just get on the internet, right? Speak your truth, right? Don't hold back. You know, Twitter as an entire platform is to state your opinion so concisely that uh, you cannot actually be careful with your words. It disables the ability for careful, careful speech at times, right? Internet news headlines are literally things that are designed to grab you. And in order to grab you, they have to lack nuance. They have to have an incendiary tone. They have to be unbridled in the way that they at attempt to grab your attention. Do you allow these platforms to kind of teach you a way that you're going to think your thoughts, both internally and externally? Do you just eat these things up? Do you make them a part of how you think about the world and life? Bridled speech is countercultural. It's counter to our desires because deeply we desire unbridled speech. The modern internet age, social media, the news apparatus, it shows us this deep desire we have, even if it's initially a good desire, right? So there's a desire for justice. There's a desire for knowledge and efficiency. But those things begin to turn into something that will lead us to sin and will lead us to death. And I have to say, I've, I've in my life, I know, caused a lot of pain. And I've inflicted pain upon people. And I've caused damage to relationships with friendships and I've seen a lot of this happen in my lifetime and in the church, and especially in the last few years. Friendships ruined, people leaving the church because we were not careful. Desire leads to sin that leads to death. Do you think anyone is thinking about the call to bridled speech when they're feeling agreeable about what goes on, uh, on in the world, right? Do you think that the call to bridled speech is like, oh, well, you know, I'm feeling really good about the world and what's going on. Bridled speech, great. No, bridled speech is when things are going poorly. It call, it comes, the, the call to bridled speech comes when we're under duress, when we're in trials, when we are in difficulty, when we believe we're being treated or accused unfairly. There are these moments that actually the, the trials of life come at us, and that is the moment James is showing us when we need bridled speech, especially when we are being treated or accused unfairly. These are the moments we speak carefully to, with, and about one another. This is when we must speak carefully about how we feel. A lot of times it's because we, we need to bridle our speech on a practical level because a lot of times you have to slow down if you're gonna speak the truth in love to one another. Scripture calls us to speak the truth in love and sometimes you have to wait until you have the lens of love to say the right words. You gotta check your heart and know. A lot of bridled speech is knowing that we're in this place of walking in the spirit. Galatians 5, 22, 23, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, 
there is no law. A lot of times I find myself sitting and someone's like, what should I do here? Or even I'm asking Tanya or I'm asking someone else, what should I do here? And a lot of times they're like, you could just say nothing. I think that would be the best option right now. And maybe when you're in the place of peace, you're in the place of knowing that you have love for the person you are talking to, then it's time to speak. But until then, we need bridled speech. Because following the desire for an unbridled tongue, you want the unbridled tongue, it leads to death. How many times have I come in asking questions and listening instead, where if I had led with unbridled speech, I would have destroyed and provoked? So take a moment, saints, examine yourself. This includes how you, again, type, talk, live your life. Examine yourself, especially in times where you believe you are right. Have you had bridled speech? Maybe not speech that tickles our desires, but it's what's required for us to pursue the unity and the relationships that God really wants for us to have with him, but especially with others. The Lord can actually handle your unbridled speech, I would say aside. He can handle it, right? You can, you, you can say whatever you want to him, and, and, and he is a patient father waiting to hear. Uh, but with one another, we've got to be careful. Uh, and aside about this is actually C.S. Lewis wrote about this in The Abolition of Man. He wrote about this moment where people would simply cease to be human beings at all because they're just being turned to and fro by their desires. I'm just going to follow what I feel is right. And essentially, he says, when you have ceased to, be, when you've ceased to rule yourself, but instead you're ruled by your desires, you're just an animal. Animals just kind of, they feel and they, and they do, right? They feel and they do. They, they don't have control. We need bridled speech. So verse 26, right? Following the desire for an unbridled tongue leads to death. So what brings life? Do you think he's now going to talk about having a bridled tongue? Actually, I've been doing that, but that's not what he talks about next. He instead contrasts this area of death, unbridled speech, with a practice in the way of life. 27, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This seems like a weird left turn, except, you know, when someone really knows you, they can bring up two completely separate things, but you know exactly what they're talking about, right? And, and, or maybe you as the person addressing that person knows exactly what you're doing, right? And so he goes, hey, unbridled speech over here. You know what the opposite of that is? Caring for the orphan and the widow. Maybe he knows a certain point of failure for this group of Christians that he's talking to. Maybe he knows that the antidote to unbridled speech or the effects of unbridled speech is to go and do something actually helpful instead of opening your mouth so frequently. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that. I just came out. <laughs> so he warns them against unbridled speech and he contrasts that with the joy found in serving the orphan and the widow. The way of joy is found with the orphan and the widow, to give regard and attention to those who are not worth it, not worth it by the standards of the world, and often by those in the church, apparently. The orphan and the widow's significance for their day was that often if you were an orphan and widow, you had very little resources, you had no way to care for yourself, fend for yourself, to know uh, 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 what, where your next meal was coming from. And so religion that's pure to be a gospel people, one of the results of people responding in faith to what Jesus has done for us is to care for the orphan and widow. 
It's care for those who have no voice, who are in a place of vulnerability, both in the church, there were widows in the church, and outside of the church. And then he goes on after talking about the voiceless and vulnerable. Religion that is pure, verse 27, and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep, uh, sorry, uh, the, the second half of 27, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, a lot of times when you hear those words, you think, oh, unstained, that means I'm not doing certain things. But this is not a pietistic personal holiness view of being unstained. It's not a withdrawal, like I don't wanna sin, I'm gonna stay away from these things or these people. It's instead a refusal to participate in how the world indulges desires that lead to sin, that lead to death. Do you see that? Being unstained means I'm not going to engage in this inner dialogue, this inner indulging of uh, uh, wrongly ordered desires. I'm not gonna indulge myself in that. I'm not gonna indulge myself in verse 13, the idea that God is against me and that he's not for me. I'm not gonna engage in these ideas that my trials are meaningless and not to be, there's no joy to be drawn out of this trial. I'm not gonna engage in this idea that I need to get what I can get now because there's nothing else after this life. I'm not going to engage in this idea that my personal feeling of happiness every day is the most important and precious thing I need to pursue. I'm not going to engage in this idea of sacrifice that may seem a bit unreasonable, that, that all sacrifice is just kind of unreasonable. You know, everyone around me feels that there's a, there's a certain amount I can get away with that, you know, this is what's reasonable. I'm not gonna indulge this idea that care for the orphan and the widow in a way that causes uh, a discomfort and a sacrifice for me is just, that's not something that I need to do. See, these are standards, these are cultural standards and, this, and, and a story that's happening in the world that we begin to tell ourselves. And James says, keep yourself unstained from the world. He's not saying don't live in the world. He's not saying don't be uh, 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 in, in, in a part of the world in a sense, but he's saying keep yourself unstained from this place in your soul that begins to lead to desires that lead to sin and lead to death. And isn't it funny that he relates being unstained to being with the orphan and the widow, right? You would think that being pure and undefiled is being equated with something else, something that they're not, that they should, they should not be doing. But instead it's engaging in this way. Being unstained and undefiled is is to be a person who engages and does this good thing, James says. Not just someone who abstains from evil or bad things. And so what do we do with these words, right? We talked about bridled speech. What do we do with the words of verse 27? Look, we can do a lot of, you can do a lot of uncomfortable maneuvering. You can do a lot of, uh, well, I buy from this kind of coffee shop that they try to help widows um, with the coffee beans they grow. So I'm not saying that that's not a legitimate part of this, but I think, can it mean any less than actually caring for those who are vulnerable with your time and your hours and with your dollars and your life? Can it mean less than that? I just met up with an old college friend uh, while I was in California last week. And one thing he said to me, he, he had some not so nice words about a pretty famous church. And I asked him, well, why do, why, whoa, whoa, hold on, right? He works in uh, education, in nonprofit. He's, a, he's an earnest believer. Um, and he just said, 
thousands of people would come to this church for, for, for decades and were ministered to by this church. He said, but how many people in that neighborhood could say what good the church had done for them? How many of the least, the, the most vulnerable in that neighborhood could say, this is what that church has done for me? And, and when I thought about that, it's not that they hadn't done any care for anyone in that neighborhood, but I understood what he was saying. Now in Brookline, and I'm sure this town is somewhat, somewhat like Brookline, not exactly, but somewhat. In Brookline, we don't have this problem, and we're in a city with a lot of social services, right? There's plenty of money on some level. There's lots of help. If you want help, if you don't have means, there is a lot of help as far as resources go. You can just go to a website, and there's just like, right? Whole list of things. There's plenty of activity around people who want to throw money at problems. And so what's the currency of our neighborhood and city? I don't think it's money, guys. The currency of our neighborhood, the currency of our city, the currency that we don't want to give is time. The sacrifice of time and comfort. The time that I need for my career, the time that I need for my leisure, the time that I need for my family and my goals and my life. And so who is the orphan and widow? Do we even know who is needy and vulnerable and needs our time? At City on Hill Brookline, we just a couple weeks ago had a couple get up and talk at length about their experience uh, and the call for Christians to be involved in foster care and adoption. And there is... Uh, and I, I told our church last week, there's no easy way around this, folks. You can't look at orphan and widow passage over here and just pretend that foster care and adoption over here has nothing to do with us. That you are not to be involved in some way in this endeavor. Again, you can, you can, you can try to find your way. But for, for me also, as I studied this passage, I kind of understood this is a conversation Tanya and I've had for a long time about how and when and, and what's the right way to get involved in foster care and adoption. And we said, hey, we're, we're going to have to start looking into how to at least get in the first steps of this to care for the orphan and the widow. Who are the people in your neighborhood in a place of vulnerability? I want to say aside, some of you actually do in your occupations and your jobs. Uh, care for the vulnerable in your day-to-day -day work and your careers. Like maybe you even decided that what you wanted to do uh, with most of your day in your job was to do some care for those who are vulnerable. And I want to say like, thank you for doing that, that that's really, really important that um, it's often a lonely endeavor when you're doing that. You, it is hard to see the needs of people day in and day out and to know that the reality of others around you is not like that. But I want to I honor you and say the Lord's glad for you. The Lord is glad to be with you and he's close and to be in a place of great joy in doing that. But who is the orphan and the widow for us here at City on a Hill Somerville? Because we can at times be in danger of indulging desires that lead to sin, that lead to death. And the sin here would be the negligence of the orphan and the widow. I'll give you an example from our congregation. I do think that this conversation is the one you guys have to have as a congregation. For us, I know that since, since I came to City on a Hill, Brookline, we had a 
relationship with a pregnancy crisis center, right? And historically, the, 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 uh, the desire to volunteer with this, this pregnancy crisis center was kind of low. And, and we cannot be selective in our care for the vulnerable. We have to take time to find out who they are. Our neighborhood, our lives, the culture is structured to keep you as far, keep you in your lane and focused on yourself as long as you can. It actually requires some effort to break out and find out who the orphan and the widow is. So how is God calling you to respond today with these two verses? For unbridled speech, to care for the orphan and the widow, and to be unstained by the world. Have you been living in such a way that you're enslaved to desires that lead to sin and death? Or are you walking in a place of joyful response to God in the midst of your trials, walking in a way that will produce steadfastness? Will you believe that God is what God is telling us about our calling to care for the orphan and the widow? What direction does it go in? Do you need to process that? Uh, uh, we just talked about community groups reopening today, right? Or, or, or this month. Uh, do you need to be around others who help you think through that? Do you need to stare at someone who you trust in the family of God and say, where do you see in my life I could care for the orphan and widow? Who, who is most vulnerable? Can we figure this out together? Maybe the Lord's calling you to consider foster care and adoption. Quick side note on that. You don't have to have a large house because I know that's a premium. You don't have to be married. You could even provide respite care for someone who's already doing foster care and adoption. There are people in our network who are active foster parents, and if you got training, you could maybe say, hey, I'm gonna watch your foster child for a night so you can just get a moment of, of a breather. Maybe you're called in some ways to find out how you can be a blessing in this neighborhood and community. We, I challenged our community groups last week. Be a bit entrepreneurial. Try to figure out where the needs are. And I would say for you guys, especially around this idea of the currency is not money. The currency is time. Where are people neglected that need time? Will you restrain your words in such times as these, pursuing careful words that allow for the Spirit of God to lead? Are you going to be careful with your words on social media and in the relationships with others when you're tempted to gossip? It's even as easy as an eye roll or a like yeah i know what you mean it's very easy i've talked about th that fact that that a lot of times in the church all it takes is for someone to say hey did you notice that so-and-so is like this or did this or said this and if you all you got to do you don't have to say anything you can just go like this you can just go <laughs> you know all it takes is just a little bit a little bit to poison the well and and to lead to all kinds of unbridled thoughts and speech ultimately Will you restrain yourself and pursue the way of God? And when we do this together, and not alone, the Lord will lead us. It, when we do it in community, when you're in your community group and you intentionally see that place as a place to refine and, and, and pursue what God has for you. Sometimes your community group can itself be a kind of trial. I will say this, right? Some, somebody left a little too loud. That's all right. Um, Sometimes it is difficult, I will say, but you know, there is something about steadfastness that gets produced. Tanya and I, I remember, we were in our first community group for a while. Actually, actually where's, okay, the Coneses aren't here. So we were with Jeremy and Virginia in community group, and not because of them, 
to be clear. But there was just, I just told Tanya, I said, you know, the way I know this works, the way that Satan will come at us is that right when it comes about to community group time, we are going to do, want to do everything except go to community group. We're just going to feel a deep desire to just not go. We're going to feel tired. We're going to feel awful. And we have to just, just go. We just have to go. And sure enough, I forget what night it was, Wednesday night maybe, whether it be Tuesday evening because it's the next day or that day, you're just having the worst day, you know? And, but when we pursue this together, that, that's where this, this is born, right? So the trial and community group, that's, maybe that's for someone. I didn't plan on saying that. Um, but, but this community, by the way, is the way that you're going to discern what are trials that will lead you to joyful suffering in the Lord and steadfastness and perfection and pursuing uh, 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 the fruit that kind of previews what Jesus is going to bring when he returns. Or maybe you're in a trial that actually is something you need to kind of get out of that's going to lead to your own death. <laughs> and that you do that in community. That's how you discern it together. Uh, you don't discern it by yourself. We live lives defined by sacrificial care because he cared for us, right? That's who we are. We live lives defined by sacrificial care because he cared for us. How is he calling you this morning? How is he calling all of us as a church body, as a church network this morning? That is what James is trying to say to our churches. We have to live lives unstained by the world's standards, which say we care about ourselves first, that we come first, and then everything else is just kind of on top where you can. We live lives defined by sacrificial care because he cared for us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those in this room that are struck by heavy words and are already anticipating how they might fail at doing this. And I pray for your forgiveness to be apparent on the other side of these hard words. That you are happy for us to try because you know that your grace is infinite as we pursue in good faith to please you and to seek the good of our neighbors and of one another. We will fail to bridle our words and yet your forgiveness waits for us. We will try to care for the orphan and widow and find ourselves putting ourselves first again, but you will forgive us. These are not words to be received harshly. They are, they are to be received as a way to life. You want us to thrive. You want us to live. You want us to experience joy. You want us to have deeper fellowship with you. You say that when we care for the orphan and the widow, when we care for those who are in need, that we were there for you. You just want to be closer to us, God. You want us to draw near to you. You are the one who, set, when accused unjustly, stood and said nothing. You want us to draw near to you. You want us to draw close to you. You want us to experience the fellowship that can come with one another when we have bridled speech that speaks the truth in love, that seeks one another. You want us to experience the life that comes when we hold back our words and instead quietly serve the orphan and widow instead of proclaiming things out into space. God, I pray for, I pray for each and every person in this room and myself included, 
would we be people who pursue you and are defined by the kind of care that you had for us. We thank you in Jesus' name.